To be able to travel in this world is a true blessing. It helps one gain perspective when exposed to another culture. It causes a sense of weightiness to be in places where the titans of the faith once walked. It takes away one's breath when wandering around the natural wonders of God's creation. By traveling, one makes experiences that will last with them forever. And of course, it's a wonderful treat to see how our international brothers and sisters in Christ worship. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another exciting episode of the Paradigm Switch podcast with our hosts, Avon and Alex. We seek to encourage our heavenly family in Christ to renew their minds and to think right side up. The key to victory is knowledge, and it is our hope that through sharing our personal testimonies, struggles, and triumphs, it will help you continue your walk with Christ. The Bible says we are new creatures in Christ, but in order for us to emerge anew, we first have to think anew. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Paradigm Switch. We are the number one Christian podcast on earth and heaven's favorite podcasters. My name is Alex. I'm one of the co-hosts here, and with me is Avon. Hey, everybody. And it is our 101st episode. We've crossed the threshold of triple digits. We have, and now we're going to a new mountain to 200. <laughs> or was, was, is 150 a mountain, or are we just going to skip that one and go to 200? I don't know. I mean, I, I've seen both get celebrated for like TV shows and things. So I don't know. We've been very blessed so far to get here and it's been a great journey. And uh, for this 101st episode, a little bit of a different kind of format because I am on the road this week. Uh, actually, I was on the road last week, but we didn't really touch on that given the weighty matters that we had to discuss. But this week, not so weighty. Uh, I am recording from Rome, Italy. Oh my today. goodness. Have you got good, did you um, get good pizza yet? You know, Rome does not have good pizza, I what? Don't think. I think you have to go to Naples for this, which is about 70 minutes south on the high speed train. I would have thought all of Italy, like everywhere would have had good pizza. Cause you know, I love me some pizza. So That'd no, be like the one uh, thing I'd be like, me. I want to have when I'm in Italy is pizza. That has not been my experience here on either of my trips here so far. Um, I would say that in Rome, it's just, just, I don't think it's known for pizza. I actually think if you asked Italians, they would tell you this too. It's just not known for its pizza. Now the lasagna on the other hand is the best I've ever eaten, period. Okay. So it's really good noodle dishes. But the pizza, I have been told, is in Naples, is where you have to go. And uh, my only other you know, time on my last trip here, I had the pizza in Rome. Again, not very, not very good or not what I was hoping. I shouldn't say it was, wasn't good. I should just say it wasn't as good of pizza as in the U.S. Uh, people can disagree with that. But I'm just saying the best pizza I had in Italy was New York style pizza in Venice the last time I was over here four years ago. So I just don't think Rome has the pizza scene. I think you have to go to Naples for that. Okay, well, I'm gonna have to take your word because the only uh, traveling 
I've ever done to get pizza is just going to Chicago to get Gino's pizza. That's as far as I've gone for pizza. So um, maybe We're one day. New York City too, right? We have had New York pizza. We have gone to New York City too, but I think the best pizza for me is Gino's pizza in Chicago because I love cheese. And I feel as though New York doesn't put enough cheese. I feel like they're more of a crust people than being more involved with their cheese. Just my opinion. So... I'm not bashing <laughs> it. <laughs> I, no, I just, I just, I just, I just feel one. like Chicago's pizza is much cheesier. That deep dish pizza is just much cheesier. That's just my, just my opinion. Um, but New York pizza is fine too. Arturo's pizza in um, New York City is amazing. My friend and I went there one time. We stood in line for an hour and a half for that pizza. Totally worth it. They make their own brew of root beer. Love it. So is that the one at the end of the bridge? I can't remember. I don't think so. I feel like it's in the middle of Greenwich, um, oh, that um, borough. Um, so it's been a while since I've been into um, New York City. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. But So, Alex, you are out there traveling. You have left the continent of North, North America, and you're now out there in Europe. You have left us <laughs> for what? How I long you're out there for three three weeks? Two and a half. Okay. Now, yeah, it's been it's been good. I needed to get away. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> I will give it to you. You have been kind of busy with work and under a lot of stress and stuff. And so our audience doesn't just think we're just talking about travel <laughs> in this episode. You know, you wanted to share a lot of the historical and the other significant wonders that you have seen or are seeing out there in Europe that actually speak to the Christian faith. Yeah, and I think that it's uh, significant because Christianity really took hold in Europe uh, before it took hold elsewhere in the world, other than, of course, in the Middle East, which is where it began. Uh, but the apostles came out of what is today Israel, and a lot of them made their way into Europe. Uh, Paul especially visited quite a few places in Europe, um, particularly Greece and also here in Rome. And I believe that James may have ended up in Spain. Um, I have I didn't get to go there, but supposedly in the northwest of Spain, in Santiago, there is a uh, cathedral that is named after James. And while church tradition is unsure if this is actually the case, there, there's more... Um, unknowns here than there is where other apostles are buried but P, uh, james is supposed to be buried here in the the cathedral in northwest of spain in santiago but i didn't get there that was uh very far away from where i was but it is uh, a lot of history in europe and a lot of christian history as well as of course the worldly history of rome the heart of the roman empire uh, very hostile to Christians at one point in time, but then uh, the uh, religion of the Roman Empire became Christianity under Emperor Constantine, became a protected religion, no longer persecuted, and a lot of Europe as a result ended up in the Christian faith as missionaries went out from Rome and other places to spread the gospel. You know, um, Alex is much more um, knowledgeable in the historical things of the church, like how it spread from the Middle East and its kind of movement throughout history and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, including like, like you were just saying how it 
you know, spread throughout Europe, you know, went from the Middle East to Europe to America, all that kind of stuff. And all the cathedrals and like the crusades and all that kind of stuff. I'm not I'm not a real history buff. But, you know, I was thinking before we did this episode and, you know, I was like, you know, it's, it's actually probably really important to learn the history of how our faith got here today in the sense of like how it got to America. How did it last um, from its roots of when it started in um, the Middle East and all that kind of stuff, just following the trail line. And I think it brings glory to God that God has protected it and protected the faith and kept it up over these 2000 years and just seeing the movement and seeing the growth throughout the entire world. And it just brings so much to me, just even though I don't know all the facts yet, maybe, you know, that'll be my goal for this year. Just knowing just over 2,000 years, God has protected this faith and God has protected his His gospel and his people and it's spreading and all this kind of stuff. And there's historical footprints of it is just amazing. It brings glory to God. Yeah, and I'm not an expert in church history. Well, you're better than me. So, well, I just (laughs) want to let the audience know, I don't have all the answers here, but... I can speak to generally, you know, the general kinds of things that happened over the course of time and and how Christianity spread uh, from, as you said, from uh, the Middle East into Europe and then later to the Americas. So it's very fascinating, though, being over here, uh, they they call it like the, the old world, you know, like. Uh, Europe, Africa, Middle East, the cradle of civilization, you know, it came up here. Asia can be included in this as well. They call it the old world because the documented histories of civilization are much longer mm-hmm. on the, um, over here in the East, uh, Eastern Hemisphere, as opposed to the Americas in the Western Hemisphere. And as a result, there's just a lot more history to be found here, I think. Not to say that there isn't a lot of history in the United States and other places in the Western Hemisphere, because there is, but the amount of historical texts and historical buildings and all kinds of other historical sites, so many of them over here in Europe and other places in the Eastern Hemisphere, Africa and Asia and the Middle East. So. All right. Well, take us on a journey of what you have seen and what you have learned so far. Well, I am one week into my trip currently, and so I can describe a little bit of where I've been, places I've seen, and the kinds of um, worship that I have observed from our overseas brothers and sisters. So it's been a very interesting time, and I've really enjoyed myself. But it first started out in London, which is the capital of the United Kingdom. And I would say as a city, it's very big, both by area and by population. In fact, I do believe it is larger than New York City by population. And it is a very metropolitan, cosmopolitan city and extremely diverse as far as European cities go. And in that sense, kind of reminds me a little bit of New York in a way. Um, So you fly to London, chances are you're going to end up in Heathrow Airport, which is the main airport there. It's an absolutely enormous place. And then there's a long trek through customs and baggage claim and then onto the subway, which over in London is called the Tube. And then it's another hour or so to central London. 
but uh, I didn't have too long in London on this particular trip. I was merely just traversing through it. Turns out it's sometimes a lot cheaper to fly into London and then take a train to the continent than to fly directly to the continent, which is what I chose to do this time. But um, while I was burning a few hours before my train to France left London, I made a stop at St. Paul's Cathedral, which is arguably the most famous church in all of London. Although, of course, people would say Westminster Abbey is also very famous, but I think St. Paul's is a little more, uh, this is the place where a lot of the famous uh, royal events have happened, and there's some well-known historical figures who have frequented this church in the past. So I'm assuming this know. is a Catholic church? No. It okay. is not, uh, but I I do think remember hearing that it began as a Catholic church, but it's not a Catholic church anymore because the Reformation happened. Okay, and some reason why I, I hear cathedral, I just automatically think Catholic. Yeah, so so no, and it's not even the same building anymore uh, because the original St. Paul's Cathedral burned down in the Great Fire of London in the 1600s. But this iteration of it is newer and it was built by protestants not okay. by catholics but we'll get into that in a moment um so i think saint paul's cathedral if you ever go there avon and, and i really hope you can get over there i know you have an opportunity to go to london perhaps in the near future so if you do i strongly recommend going here it's a very grand building it's big it's spacious it feels kind of uh, very light inside and you know, not all cathedrals, and at least the ones I've visited prior to this trip in Europe, feel that way. Some of them have a more darker ambience to them, more closed in. Not so here in St. Paul's. And if you go in here, there's some amazing paintings on the walls and on the ceilings, uh, which is kind of not what happens typically in Protestant churches. You don't really see a lot of that ornateness that you do in, in Catholic and Orthodox churches, but mm -hmm. you are seeing it here in St. Paul's. And then below the church is a crypt where there are some very famous historical names that are down there. The Duke of Wellington, uh, Lord Nelson. Maybe you've heard of this one, even Florence Nightingale. Do you know her? The name sounds familiar, but the significance, no. Fam famous nurse. And uh, of course, I have to mention this being a virologist, uh, Alexander Fleming. She's a very famous microbiologist, okay. very famous to my field. Uh, and if you don't mind going up hundreds of stairs to the top of the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, you'll have an absolutely amazing view of all of London, you'll see the River Thames, you'll see the the eye, which is a very famous Ferris wheel on the bank of the River Thames, you'll see the skyscrapers down by Canary Wharf, and then you can just like go around in the circle and see all of the different uh, neighborhoods of the city from the top of this dome, which for a long time was the tallest point in all of London. Gotcha. You know, that actually sounds very um, nice. You have to send photos um and stuff so i can see hopefully you took some photos um i did i do have photos from the top of saint paul's cathedral unfortunately you're not allowed to take photos inside really 
but yeah, and they do that. They do that a lot at some of these cathedrals ah. here. It's, it's not unusual. That's too bad. But you know, can you, did you did you just was there a service going on for you to engage and see how they conduct um, a church service? Yes, I mean I didn't expect this. I didn't plan this. I just dropped in to visit, and then uh, while I was there, it turned out that there was a midday prayer service that was going on. Okay, uh, when I was there, or started when I was there, and so this is uh, it was very interesting to observe this, and it's very different from what you would get at a typical church in the United States, um, at least in my experience. Well, some of this, I think, is denominational. So in the United Kingdom, once upon a time, long, long time ago, I think Catholicism was the uh, predominant Christian faith. And then the Reformation happened, and we had that come out of Germany with Martin Luther, and then there was John Calvin, others. Um, But in the UK, there was a kind of or rather more in, in England, which is a region in the UK in the South. It was more of a country-centric reformation. You had Henry VIII and kind of uh, a little bit not so great beginnings of, of this particular denomination, arguably speaking, but he was not able to divorce one of his wives by the church, and he didn't like this, so he decided to create the Church of England, which today you may know is the Anglican Church. So mm-hmm. uh, the Anglican Church is a Protestant denomination today. I would say out of all of the Protestant denominations, uh, church services that I have been to, not super extensive, mind you, but a few of them, this is the one that seems most based on the liturgy, the Anglican service. Uh, And by liturgy, I mean there's a lot of the kind of religious tradition that you would get out of the Catholic mass is, and and I apologize for anybody if they think that I'm going off on the wrong tree here, but this is just what my observation is. And and it is a more, I would say classic kind of service that I found when I was in St. Paul's cathedral. And so you, you had like the, the dress, you had the, the procession down the aisles, you had the, I don't think it's a father. I, I don't know if pastor's the right word, or uh-huh. I don't think pre, I don't think priest is the right word for an Anglican church. I'm not sure, but you know, gave the the benediction, and it, it was mostly like a, a prayer service. So there was a, a prayer that went on, uh, and people would pray aloud, and the pastor or the See, I don't even know, Pastor. <laughs> you can just say, you can just call him Pastor for now, just just to fill in the it's, blank. Uh, the the minister. Uh-huh. There we go. The minister who uh, who prayed uh, over the service, prayed for the people, prayed for the nation, uh, took prayer requests from other individuals, and it was it was a very interesting time. Um, also, people there were people like me who who had just been visitors here who came, in, in addition to I guess. Uh, more regular crowd, which was interesting. And then also some of the non-religious tourists, they would like line the walls and be silently respectful, which was pretty nice, I guess. And did they have music uh, going on or no? And not at this early. No, no no music. Um and I don't know. They do have regular worship services here on Sundays, like for an actual congregational meeting. And I don't know what happens there because I 
was not in London on the Sunday, but it was just very interesting to to see different country and and believers come together for a, a bit of prayer. So I I enjoyed. I'm glad that I got to see that while I was there. How, how did it feel being able to experience it from a different perspective? Because I feel as though sometimes Christians. I mean, I can speak for myself sometimes. You know, if it's not kind of the box that we're used to, we kind of categorize it <laughs> as wrong. Or, you know, we kind of can think of it easily of like, well, you know, I don't do it that way. So, you know, there must be something off that they how they're doing it and stuff. But, I, you know, I think sometimes Christians, how do I say this? Christians need to sometimes be, it sounds weird, to be open to how worship can be expressed differently. Um, mm-hmm. I know, I, th- I think sometimes the fear is you don't want to dabble into doing something disrespectful or doing some kind of sin, um, you know, against God. And so you want to, you know, stay on point as much as possible. But at the same time, God did create different cultures and people to be differently. So worship, in my opinion, now that I'm older and wiser in the word, sometimes is expressed, um, differently than others and all that kind of stuff. We even see that stuff in America, you know, um, I go to a more Pentecostal church, you go to a more non-denominational church. So like, you know, just way of praise and worship is expressed differently. Services are conducted differently and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes, um, Christians hold this thing of, if it's not in the box that I'm comfortable with, it can be categorized. We categorize it as wrong. Yeah. And I think that that can happen to, to some people for sure. Uh, and it's unfortunate, I think. And it's again, like you said, as I've gotten older, I've come to realize there are different ways and uh, that different cultures or different uh, denominations can praise God. And at the end of the day, it is heartfelt and it is earnest. And so, you know, not not everything that is an unfamiliar to you is bad. Yeah. I, in fact, I would say quite a bit of it is, is not bad. And so it's... It was very interesting, though, because like I said, and uh, hopefully my Catholic brothers and sisters don't get too mad at me for saying this, but it it did feel more like what I would expect at a, at a mass yeah. at the end of the church because of the, the liturgy is still there. And that's there was definitely parallels that I could see between the kind of worship that happens in a Catholic mass and the kind of worship that was happening with the Anglican church. Gotcha. So, so very interesting. Um, and that was my adventure in London. And then I, after that, I had to take a train under the English Channel. And I ended up in Paris. And that's where we had our, our 100th episode. And I didn't really touch on that at the time because A, it was very tiring to be traveling like that. And B, because it was a weighty subject matter. Yeah. Very weighty. And also, you know, I was only here for a, a matter of, I don't know what it was, like 13 hours. It's not very long. Uh, we'll be back in Paris next week. And, you know, when we're recording next week, we can touch on some of my time in Paris. But I digress. After leaving Paris, I got on another train and I traveled to Spain. So this is a country I've never been to before. And so I was very excited to get there. The ride down there on the train through the French countryside is particularly nice, I thought, especially when you're on the left side of the train because it runs along the Mediterranean Sea for a time. So you go through some of these coastal cities and towns like um, Montpelier, 
and Bezier and Narbonne. And then you go underneath the Pyrenees Mountains, mm-hmm. which is in between uh, France and Spain. There's an old fortress on this road, uh, on this train line, and I don't know what it's called, but it looked really cool. Uh, it's kind of kind of to the in the south of France, right before you get to Spain. And there was also a cathedral in in a town called Beziers, which was also interesting to see. And then you go under this tunnel, and you're in Spain all of a sudden. And you know, even I like to ride trains. I like to see the in between. I like to see you know, kind of the the areas that you wouldn't normally get to see by airplane or by car because you just stay on the freeway the whole time. The train takes you through the countryside and through little towns and everything. So it's really nice. Well, I hear the trains in Europe are a lot better than the ones we have here in America. So I'll give you that. Well, they're they're certainly faster. No one can dispute this. Uh, The train in Spain goes 200 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. So it's like really (laughs) fast. So the same is true in France on a different line than the one I was on. But uh, yes, 200 miles an hour. So very quick, very smooth. I have to tell you, you don't really notice that you're going this quick. Well, I would imagine using the train, you're able to see the countryside. Like you said, you can see the countryside a lot more. You can see the scenery a lot more, all that kind of stuff in a much more like a nice leisurely way than like an airplane, like you said, or like driving because you have to focus on the road and stuff. So, but Uh, and in Europe, you know what? In some places in Europe, there's no speed limit. So the Autobahn, you have got, yeah. to be, got to be paying attention <laughs> uh, because if you just like what can happen is you're driving along and let's say you're doing 80 miles an hour. And I know that some people there, they'll do a like a 65 on these freeways. So you get in the left lane to pass the individual. And then all of a sudden there's somebody in a sports car doing 150 that's flying up behind you. And so you have to be careful before you step out into the left lane. Uh, because it can be a very tragic accident if you're not paying attention. No, so. I'll I'll stick to 55. I'll stick to that. <laughs> not trying to mess with that. But when yeah. you're in Spain, and when you were in Spain, did you get to see any nice cathedrals there, or um, what did you get to see when you were down there in Spain? Yeah, I did. I went to a few cathedrals in Spain. So I was in predominantly three cities in Spain. So first I was in Barcelona. I have to say I wasn't here for very long, really just for an evening. So I had to figure out what was the the one thing that I really needed to go see while I was here. Uh, Actually, there ended up being two things that I went to see. Uh, But one of them was the Cathedral of the Holy Cross in St. Eulalia, which Uh is also known as the Barcelona Cathedral. And that is uh, where I spent the bulk of my time in Barcelona. Uh, And it is a very different cathedral from St. Paul's. Okay. They're very different. So first of all, um, unlike in the UK, Spain is definitely a country where Uh, Catholic Christians are the large bulk of the population of Christians in that nation. And actually, I would I would tell you that there is a much higher level of uh, Christianity, Catholicism within the Spanish culture versus any of these other European countries that I've been to, and also more so than in the United States. Like it's intertwined in who they are and their personality and their culture. Like, yes, the faith is mixed in. Yes, and, and you have a very high amount of the population that identifies as Christians and 
going to church in Spain is definitely very important. Well, that's um, good to hear. Of these uh, things. Now, you know, as my brother who who he, he lives in Spain, he tells me, you know, some of it is more nominal Christianity, cultural Christianity, what, what have you, but it's still very deeply ingrained within the society. And it's very, very different than what the U.S. looks like today, which I think is kind of sad because I wish faith was more valued in the United States today. Um, but certainly in Spain, uh, it is. Um, so I will talk about the cathedral first. So it's a different kind of architecture, right? So this is how you, it just looks totally different. Um, Barcelona Cathedral is a lot older than the current iteration of St. Paul's. So it's it's made in the Gothic style of architecture, which is very common for cathedrals and churches built in the Middle Ages. So Barcelona Cathedral was built in the 1400s. And as I said, much older than St. Paul's in London, which the current iteration of it was built in the 1700s after the Great London Fire. Um, Baruch is the kind of architectural style in St. Paul's Gothic as the Barcelona Cathedral. And when you go into Gothic cathedrals, and I have uh, experienced this in Austria and in Germany, what with the St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna and the Cone Cathedral in Cone or Cologne, as the English say, but uh, it was true also here in Barcelona. It's less open feeling uh, inside the cathedral. You definitely feel more closed in. Maybe in Barcelona, not as much of a darker ambience as in the other cathedrals, but certainly it's very different from the feel of St. Paul's. Uh, but I still think it's very grand on the inside and there's still um, decorations there. And it is just a very, very nice church. It hosts um, mass on Sundays and other days of the week too. Mm -hmm. And it's very nice to go and see here. Um, there was also another cathedral that I visited in Barcelona called Sangria Familia. It's not finished yet. Uh, it's supposed to finish in 2030, I believe. Uh, there's a lot of stained glass in here, and it's very tall. It's actually, I think, going to be the tallest church in the world once it's completed. Uh, and and I have as much to say about this because it's still partially under construction, but it is bigger, and it, it's very interesting, definitely worth visiting if you're here in Spain. And so that was uh, that was Barcelona. Um and then the next day I got on a train and I went to where my brother lives in the south of Spain, which is called the Andalusia region. And in Andalusia is a city called Seville or Sevilla in Spanish. And it is, I think, pretty famous, um, Seville. And there was a cathedral there too called the Cathedral of St. Mary of the Sea. Uh, it's also known as Cathedral. Cathedral de Sevilla. I may not have pronounced that correctly. Oh, let me see if I can do my practice, practice my Spanish. Cathedral? Cathedral? <laughs> Try to pronounce it in Spanish. Cathedral <laughs> de Sevilla. Uh, see, I don't know. I don't speak Spanish. But you know what? The Spanish that is spoken in Spain is not the Spanish that is spoken in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. It's I, uh, yeah. quite different. My brother has some very interesting stories about this, but I won't 
bore you with them here. Very interesting, though. Very funny. But um, the Seville Cathedral also was built in the 1400s and in, in, into the early 1500s. I think it was like 60 some odd years uh, to build this cathedral. It is very grand inside here. Um, its ceiling is made of gold. Wow. Or it looks like gold. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so that was something that I had only seen once before, and it wasn't exactly like this. I think this was more real than in St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice, but I, I digress. So this is a very famous place. If you ever go to Seville, I, I would say this is on the must-do uh, list of places to visit. And it's got a historical, famous historical figure buried here. Uh, you've probably heard of him, Haven, Christopher Columbus. I have. I didn't know he got buried there. Yes, he has a, a tomb here in Seville, and it's it's very grand. I have to tell you. Gotcha. And you can take pictures of it, so I can send you a picture of that if you're interested in seeing this. But yeah, so Christopher Columbus, I know in the United States, increasingly becoming a controversial figure. But this is the guy who brought with him a lot of Christian missionaries into the Western Hemisphere. And this is how we got Christianity in much of what is now North America. So you, he came and landed in what is today uh, the Dominican Republic, and so Christianity in the Western Hemisphere really started in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And then some of the other Spanish who came, and some of them are infamous, and, you know, Cortez in Mexico and uh, Pizarro in Peru. And they did some things that I think were probably displeasing to the Lord and uh, sometimes hard for others to swallow. Um, you know, it's... It's an interesting historical topic debate, but what cannot be denied, I don't think, is that with the Spanish, we got a lot of Christian missionaries coming mm -hmm. to the United States, or to the North America, South America, and they were able to successfully bring the good news and the gospel to the indigenous people at the time who had had no knowledge of this, no knowledge of the good news. And you can say what you want about what happened there and what the Spanish did, but I think that God used this as a way to reach people who had never heard of him before. Mm -hmm. And I think that he often does these things. He, he takes situations that may not be the best or that are tragic, and he finds good to come out of them. He works them together for his good. And I think uh, certainly today, when you look at a lot of Latin America, in particular South America, uh, it was uh, the Christianity very predominant in all of these countries, and it came from Spain originally. So, gotcha. That is, I think, something that we really ought to note. Gotcha. Now, from Spain, you got to Rome, and this is the one I want to hear about because Rome has a lot of Christian history, especially when it deals with the Colosseum and the martyrs. And all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, before we talk about Rome, there's one other interesting thing about Andalusia in the south of Spain. I, I want to just touch on this. You mentioned the Crusades earlier. So the south of Spain, actually all of Spain at one point, 
was under the control of a group of people called the Moors. So the Moors were Islamic. Mm -hmm. They were Muslim. And they kind of came north and they invaded France and they got as far as Tours. Uh, so Tours is a city that is southwest of Paris, um, pretty, pretty far up north in France. Um, when you look at the geography of France, it's, it's a, I don't know if they would consider it northern France, but certainly when you think of cities that are more north in France than south, Tours comes to mind. Um, and the Moors were defeated in, in a battle um, by the French, who were Christians. Yeah. And then over time, um, throughout the Crusades, the Moors were successfully pushed further, further, and further back into Spain. And then eventually, under the reigns of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain, they got thrown out of Spain entirely, and they were sent to Africa, which is... Um, today, a predominantly Islamic place in North Africa, Morocco, Algeria, that area. But uh, what is interesting is that a lot of old mosques became churches oh. in the aftermath of, of the Crusades and after this. And so you will go to some of these churches in southern Spain, and they completely look Middle Eastern. They look Middle Eastern. They, some of them even have the old minarets still standing that are now steeples. Uh, it's it's very interesting to me. Huh. Not something that one typically associates with Western Europe. I don't know how. I feel, uh, okay, I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know if I have an opinion about um, using old mosques at church as a as churches, but well, they did uh, that. Um, do you know the Hagia Sophia? No, you know I'm not a history a, buff. A famous church in Istanbul it used to be a church. Now it's a mosque, and now Christians are no longer allowed to even visit it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, this is what happened in Turkey, but it goes both ways, is what I'm trying to say. Gotcha. Comes yeah. to, the, the, to the Crusades and stuff. Gotcha. So, Interesting. Now, yes. So I just thought it was worth talking about that. Now you wanted to talk about Rome, and Rome is. Uh, where I am now, and it, it's definitely an ancient and historic city, and it feels that way. Um, very, very old. So much history here. Um, the Roman Empire, of course, mentioned in Scripture quite extensively. It was the predominant world power when Jesus and his apostles were walking this earth, and they once ruled pretty much the entire known world from Rome. And I think there's a lot of reminders of the Roman Empire's time here. So yesterday I went to the Colosseum, for example, and this is obviously Rome's, one of its most famous landmarks. And it's a place that is infamous for early Christians because once upon a time, the Roman Empire would do their best to put Christians to death, to martyr them, to suppress the spread of Christianity throughout the world and the empire. Yeah. And they took a lot of Christians to the Colosseum and made them fight as gladiators. Now, how did it feel like standing there? Like, like I don't know, kind of like in awe in a sense of like, wow, like I'm standing in the same place where my brothers and sisters in Christ like had to put where lives were on the line. Like I'm in I'm in that yeah. historical place. Yeah. And it it is striking, isn't it? When you are, I mean, 
I don't know. You've never been there, I guess. So maybe I can't can't ask that question. But uh, it is uh, there is a weightiness to it, mm-hmm. I think, and it it is uh, something that you keep in mind when you're there. It's just like so much went on here, so much blood was spilt here. Uh, of course, you have to think about this because it can be easy to just get caught up in the excitement and be like, "Oh, I'm in the Coliseum!" Woo! Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> You do have to, yeah, you have to think about these things. And I believe that there were 3,000 Christians of the early church who were martyred within the Colosseum, including uh, Ignatius of Antioch, who is one of the more famous early church fathers. Um, He learned from Polycarp, who learned from uh, John, the apostle. Gotcha. As uh, church history says, at least that's that's what I think. So uh, it's very weighty place and you just you can easily see the history and the history uh historical sites there and i don't know, i mean i wish you could go even I, I i wish one day you could get to italy and it, it's almost i'll put it on my bucket list we'll pray for my uh strength to do that long flight uh yes <laughs> no it was only it was only six hours and 56 minutes to to the united kingdom so it actually wasn't all that much longer than going to los angeles okay from the east coast but anyway uh another another old old place in rome is the pantheon so you know how the greeks the ancient greeks they had the parthenons this was like their temple where they would go and worship their gods once upon a time in rome the pantheon served the same function this Mm -hmm. is where they would go to to worship their old gods, Jupiter and Minerva and uh, Neptune and Mars and all of, all of those uh, false gods there from the ancient Roman pantheon religion. But uh, today, the pantheon, it's, it's the same building. It's, uh, it's a Roman building. It's like made of stones, like super old. Now it's a church. Gotcha. Now it's a church. It's uh, named after Mary as many of the churches are but uh you know you go in there and it strikes you as once upon a time this is a place where the romans absolutely tried to stop christianity today this is a place where christianity became uh the 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 religion that everybody practiced in rome so it just shows god outlasts empires that's what happened here. hey that's what, yeah so a very interesting thing uh, experience there. And then um, also here in Rome are the tombs of two very famous apostles. And I would argue probably the two most famous apostles. The first is, is Peter and the second is Paul. So like this um, is definitely their tombs. Like sometimes I always go, yes. sometimes I always think like, oh, you know, that's what they say, but you know, it could be lost in history. You know, is this like, yeah, so uh, the the Catholic Church has a lot of history, of course, and they they are very confident. Unlike with uh, James' tomb in Spain, mm-hmm. they are very confident that this is where Peter was uh, crucified upside down and buried in Rome, and where Paul uh, was killed. I believe he was beheaded and buried in Rome. Although, actually, we'll talk about Paul. It's it's not quite in the place where Paul was executed. Uh, very, 
very close to it, but not at the exact site. So, um, oh, I guess we can talk about Paul first. So right now, um, where you would go if you wanted to see Paul's tomb is a place called the Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls. And so this is a cathedral that's kind of to the south of the Colosseum. And what I have learned is that Paul was executed a little bit distance away, but this was the place where this church was eventually founded, uh, built, which was closest to that location, closest that could, you know, have a church be placed there. And the early church, uh, I guess, took the remains of Paul and turned them into a sarcophagus and then buried them underneath this cathedral. And that is uh, where we have Paul's tomb. Gotcha. And it's, it's a smaller church than the other really famous, uh, church in Rome, which is, well, technically it's in the Vatican, but that's within the city of Rome, uh, which is St. Peter's Basilica, but it's still definitely somewhere worth going. I think I had not been there in my last trip to Italy four years ago. So I, I got to see something new and, you know, just Paul is, you think of him, he he was able to really bring Christianity all over the place. Right. Um, all over the Middle East, Turkey, what modern day Turkey, Greece, he came to Italy. Um, he, he, he was uh, here in Rome once upon a time. And so it's really just kind of amazing to think about this, that through through him and through his martyrdom, um, you get lasting spread of the gospel, and it has stayed here ever since. Gotcha. In Rome. It's kind of like surreal, surreal thing. Like, yo, this is the guy. Yeah, very interesting. And then I would say one more thing. So, uh, Saint Peter's Basilica is the other uh, big church. Uh, it's in the Vatican, which is actually a separate country from Italy, even though it's entirely within Rome's city borders. It's very. Uh, interesting government there. But St. Peter's Basilica is probably the most grand church I have ever been in. This this is like where the Pope is, right? So oh, okay. Very famous. I'm sure you've seen this on television. If you see the Pope on his balcony, this is where this happens. Um, this is where Peter is buried, and he is buried underneath St. Peter's Basilica. You can go down into the crypt. Um, he's considered the first Pope of the church, so all the other popes whose bodies they were able to recover are also buried with him underneath St. Peter's Basilica. So a very interesting place to visit. Um, they do have church services here, although I did not go to one. Uh, there was not uh, an opportunity for that for me. Um, another very famous uh, piece of artwork that commemorates a famous or infamous moment, perhaps in the Bible called the Madonna Dea Petra, or Our Lady of Piety. It's a, it's a very famous statue of Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding the recently crucified Jesus. It was made by Michelangelo, mm -hmm. one of his more famous works. It is held in this cathedral. So getting to see that is uh, really amazing. And also at the Vatican is the Sistine Chapel, where you have arguably what is Michelangelo's most famous work, uh, this is his painting of God and man on top of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, and God is reaching out a finger. 
I think this is to Adam, but Adam cannot reach God because of sinfulness, we think. I mean, I, I guess that's what the... That's why I always thought it uh, was. What is trying to... The, the meaning behind this, the imperfection of man, and this, this depicts the chasm that existed between man and God, and it emphasizes why it's so important we have a relationship with Jesus so that he can help us bridge this gap. And I'm not a big art guy, but my breath was taken away by the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Gotcha. So, this is something definitely you should go to if you're ever in Rome. And I know we're getting short on time. And I've talked a lot, and it's just really <laughs> cool to be here and and talk about the, these places and share them with everybody. But I I want to say one thing because I've heard I've heard criticism about Christians in Europe uh, before. And I think a lot of Christians in the U.S., especially in Protestant denominations, they they criticize the grandeur of these cathedrals overseas. They criticize the Christians about why would they spend so much of the church's money to build a building? Why would they spend uh, or place precious gemstones in the walls and on the ceiling? Why is there gold-plated ceiling tiles uh, why are there all of these paintings by famous artists? Why are there such extravagant sculptures put in to these churches? And they they say it's kind of like the Christians are sinning somehow mm-hmm. by doing this. And I'm sure you've heard these accusations before as well. Yeah, churches. you know, even some of the larger churches in America, people say, why is it so decked out or why is it so nicely put together? Or they spent too much money on decorating and stuff like that. Or they have too many screens. You know, they don't need, you know, people criticize um, kind of how much money the church spends in making it look nice. Yeah, and I just don't think that this holds water because – I, genu- I genuinely believe, and I, and I think if you go to these churches in Europe, you're going to come away with this too. The people who built them, they built them this way because they believe that God's house deserved man's best. Mm. And it's, a, it's an expression of worship, of, of devotion to God. They want his house to be uh, just the most amazing place that it could be the best of what we can build as man in, in structures, you know, kind of like how people will dress up and, and dress their best to go to church. This is kind of the same thing, dress up the building to be its best so that God can call it his home. And it's not because of greed and it's not because of pride that I think that the early uh, medieval Christians built these cathedrals. I mean, even they would spend 60, 70, 80, 90, a hundred years to build these cathedrals. Mm-hmm. And I think it just speaks to how how in awe of God they were, how much they they feared him and how much and in a good way and how much that they wanted him to have our best as man. And and I can only weep that today our devotion to God in the West has declined so much from what it once used to be. Well, anyone so, who really studied the Bible knew like the Jewish temple was decked out. God gave <laughs> clear instructions how he wanted that built. 
he gave, he was like, if y'all going to do this, this is going to look nice. It's not going to be some cheap wood. We're going to get good wood. Like, it's going to be well decked out. And if you even read the book of Revelation on how God treats his house and how God decorates heaven and all that kind of stuff, streets of gold, nothing but the best. So this kind of mindset of thinking, you know, like God, anything dealing with God needs to be modest and not flashy or anything like that. You don't know anything about God. God makes himself, represents himself looking nice and looking clean and looking, giving it his best. And like you said, it's a form of worship like this is god almighty and to show him how much you love him you give it your all you know you give it your all you do your best and if you can do better than just some cheap wood yes i'm gonna go and try to get that most expensive wood if possible and do the best and i know some people compare to what other countries can do or what other different churches can do you know it's not the all and be all in the decorations like that is true is that the all and be all but if you can do better why not if you can do your, you know, give your best, why not? But, you know, God just appreciates what it comes from the heart. And like you said, I think the people who built these kind of things and like did this, spent the time decorating and painting and all that kind of stuff to make it look nice. It came from a good heart of trying to make God's house look nice. Yeah, I think so. And I strongly encourage those in our audience who can take a trip to Europe one day to to do that because I think it's truly an amazing experience and to be able to walk in the places that some of the early titans of the faith did. I, I just think that that's really amazing. And, and it makes me think, Abe, and one day I would like to go to Israel and walk in the same places that Jesus once did. Now that would be an adventure, but now that would yeah. be an adventure, but for now, what's your next stop going to be? Well, I am going to be here in Rome for another couple days, and then I'll be up in Venice um, later this week. And then next week when we record, I will be in Paris. And so that's uh, where our next episode will be coming to you from. All right. Well, you stay safe out there. Um, stay in touch and all that kind of stuff and enjoy yourself. Tell your brother I said hello. Um, I know you're out there visiting him and spending time with him and all that kind of stuff. So make sure you tell him I said hello. I will do that. And folks, thanks for listening to the special edition of the Paradigm Switch. And stay tuned from next week as we'll be coming to you from Paris, France. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Paradigm Switch podcast. We hope that you have learned something new for your everyday life. If you enjoyed this episode, We'd appreciate a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to tell your friends about the Paradigm Switch, too. For more information on past or future episodes, please follow the Paradigm Switch podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Be sure to tune in for our episode next week as we continue renewing our minds to think right side up. <laughs>